Hi, and welcome to this installment of our new books at the Heyman Center panel podcast. Sponsored by Columbia's Office of the Divisional Deans in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, the Department of Italian, the Italian and Mediterranean Colloquium, and the Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities. I'm Anne Levitsky. Today's podcast celebrates Assistant Professor of Italian Constantina Zanu's book, Transnational Patriotism in the Mediterranean, 1800-1850, Stammering the Nation. First, we'll hear the comments Dominique Ryle, Associate Professor of History at the University of Miami, and Mark Mazauer, Ira D. Wallach Professor of World Order Studies at Columbia, made about Constantina's book at the panel, and then we'll hear Constantina speaking about her book at the panel. Thank you. I'm, I'm, eight minutes is tough, so I'm sorry, I wrote it out. Uh, I'm not a pro. So, anyways, here we go. Constantina Zanu's book starts with the raucous last carnival in Serenissima Venice in 1797 and ends with a cafe brawl in British Corfu in 1853. Let's just admit it, Zanu is not really drawn to domesticated subjects. <laughs> Most of the people encapsulated in the pages of her book remembered the Venetian Empire as it partied its way to demise and almost all of them watched their Ionian islands and the greater maritime world they were attached to get thrown back and forth by Napoleonic wars between Russian, French, British, Ottoman, and Habsburg imperial guardianship. The experience of this set of, of this set of characters, of this set of experiences let loose her characters, leading most of them to disperse around the Mediterranean and much of Europe looking for a way to make a Greek home out of these imperial fractures. This is a special story, a story that has been covered up under tales of sick men of Europe, national liberation campaigns, and all the violence and corruptions those stories entail. It is also a special story because it recenters the timeline drastically of how empires started tottering towards constitutions and nation states putting a different heart to the springtime of people's narratives. With Zanu, it is not the Paris sneezes of the 1830s and 40s, but instead the bourbon upsets and their carbonari schemers of the 1820s that change history. This is a big deal because those 1820s disruptions usually are discussed as failed, fumbling proto-campaigns of what would be, not consequential rumblings in their own right. Put in a different way, if now many historians, a la Robert Gerbat, are arguing that World War I never ended, in many similar, though less paramilitary ways, Zanu's book shows that the Napoleonic Wars didn't really end either, at least not for the Mediterranean. Zanu's book is not just a special story because it is one that we haven't been telling. It's an important one because it answers some key questions whose prior answers never really made much sense, or at least to me. After reading this beautifully written collection of comparative, contextualized, cross-continental biographies, I think I have fewer of those nagging interrogatives that haunt me every time I prep my lectures on the early 19th century. For the Balkan avant-garde lecture I give in particular, I think I can use a little less bait and switch to answer my students, why Greece so early, why Britain so stubbornly Philhellenist? Why Russian military officers in today's Romanians are a Greek revolution? Why Capodistria's father of a nation? For purely selfish reasons, I'm glad this book is around so I can awe my students a little more 
And the fact that I can do this by telling it through people's stories instead of broad concept, concepts like religion, Western civilization theses, and warships will undoubtedly make my students want to send to Zanu some flowers. <laughs> so Zanu, consider this the first of many from Miami with love from the students of Professor Ryle messages. <laughs> Actually, now that I think of it, be prepared for some hate mail, too. My students really love the warships arguments, to my ever-increasing distress. But the part that I love most about this book is not that it answers all the what in the world is happening for Greeks question. Instead, it fills in a piece of the puzzle I never really got, a piece perhaps some of you might think is a relatively small one, but for the research and writing of my first book, loomed large. That question is why Corfu? Why was Corfu treated as a hallmark for Adriatic multinationalism, only then to be transformed into a representation of its undoing? This is a question I had before ever hearing of Zanu's existence. In fact, in 2008, when putting an AHA, that's the American Historical Association, panel together on the global Adriatic with other amazing Adriatic scholars like Pamela Ballinger, Manuel Volta, and Alison Frank Johnson, I volunteered, like the newbie I was, to give one of two papers, they decide, either on World War II Dalmatian refugees in Egypt or on why Corfu was the heart of the 19th century Adriatic. To balance out the 19th and 20th century content of the panel, my collaborators opted for the Dalmatians in Egypt. But I volunteered Corfu because there was something about it that was needling me, something I didn't know how to answer, and I like the idea of using the deadline of a conference paper to throw myself into it. I'm bringing this up not to say Zanu's thesis is one I already had. That's quite not the case at all. I'm bringing this up because throughout my sources, there are traces of the world she has brought to life. Traces, but in many ways incomprehensible ones, at least they were to me. I'm here to attest her book is true. It is not a seductive confection. It is creative, it is honest, and again, it is true. Not only that, but it is so much more that I even imagined that world was. Luckily, my collaborators pushed me to Dalmatians in Egypt, because if they hadn't, I would have mucked it up. I would have missed St. Petersburg. I would have missed Naples and Livorno. I would have missed the Orthodox Enlightenment. And most importantly of all, I would have missed the stammering. The Creole language practices and practicing her book brings to life in a way I cannot forget and in a way that actually did not happen amongst the Italian slash Slavic speakers that I studied. The guys she studied and the guys I studied in one case were the same. But mostly they were either best friends, best mentors, or best now enemies because egos are too large. <laughs> but the stammering of words and the psychological shame of stammering and writing in half in an Italian alphabet and half in a Greek alphabet that Zenu brings to life embody a common cause amongst my guys and hers, but also embody deeply different experiences and different paths for a future. If you had to think about it, they worked in the same libraries in Venice, they walked together at night after dinner and waxed fantastic about folk songs, but when they looked out on the water, they saw a different worlds. And it is in this way her book is something I did not and could not have imagined. And it is for this reason I'm most excited to be here amongst you in a building just minutes away from the rooms where I wrote the first draft of my own manuscript sitting next to a man who was on the committee <laughs> of that draft, where, that I had to defend that draft too. 
all to celebrate the publication of a volume that has answered so much for me. Zanu, your title is hilarious, because far from stammering, your pages are clarifying. May we enjoy what you have given us, and may we enjoy much more to come. Now, we'll hear Mark Mazower's comments from the panel. No, um, thank you. Here's a holiday suggestion if you're interested in um, understanding the world of Constantina's wonderful book. Um, you go to an island, I'll give you the name later, you get off the boat and you go to Vitali's uh, rent-a-car and you pick up the keys from Yannis, who 200 years ago would have been Yanni Vitali and not Yannis Vitali. Uh, and you pick up my pal father Marcos Foscolos, who 200 years ago would have been Father Marco Foscolos, and you drive 10 miles up uh, into the mountains and you go to a tiny little village and in the entrance to the village is this preposterously kind of pentagon-sized uh, late 18th century building which is was the building of the Catholic Archbishopric of the island um, and there's no Catholic Archbishop there anymore because you're on a Greek island and you're under the rock that had the Venetian castle, but the Venetian castle and the town has gone. And if you go inside, which obviously you do, like me, your idea of a good time is to consult the archives, uh, you go into the back of the palace, and it now basically just holds the archives in the library. Uh, and you go past the Ottoman firmaments on the wall, and you go inside and you start looking at all the files, including files with bizarre names like Torosiko Fakelo, the Russian file, in Greek, which is a file in Italian, from the late 18th century about some bad behavior that Russian sailors, well actually they were Albanians, got up to <laughs> on this island burning down a Catholic um, cathedral. Um, this world of Greeks and Italians and Catholics and Orthodox, uh, uh, Ottomans and Russians, that's the Venetian world actually. Uh, and that, that's the, the world of this fantastic book. And uh, I can't recommend it highly enough. It's beautifully written. It comes to life through uh, individuals and, and the very, yes, the very complex political and cultural and economic geographies that you really have to understand that stretch you. It's, it, it's not just Corfu and Venice and Paris and Chiswick where Ugo Foscolo ends up being buried, but it's also St. Petersburg and it's, you know, Istanbul is there somewhere. All of this really comes to life. It's a very sophisticated blend, all the more sophisticated for not really, I think, uh, shouting out what it's doing, blend of intellectual and cultural and literary and political history. It, it amalgamates all these things very beautifully through a very close reading of texts. I had two questions, really, just to prompt a discussion. Uh, um, the... the, the, the the, the figures, the protagonists, are of many different kinds. Some become politically prominent, some become notable literary figures, uh, Italian national poet, Greek national poet, and some are relatively unknown. And there's this fabulous figure of Mario Pieri, uh, certainly unknown to me, I don't think he's a household name like the others, who appears to have spent most of his, what, 75 odd years, I can't remember, uh, writing his journal. <laughs> 50 volumes? How many volumes? 55 years. 55 years of journal. And, and Constantina introduces us to this idea that I'd like to hear more about of, of the, um, the discovery of the self by this generation that, roughly speaking, was born in the 1770s, roughly speaking, dies in the 1850s. 
in the hands of Mario Pieri and others, it becomes utterly obsessionable. Uh, he just can't get enough of himself. Uh, and there is some speculation in this that this is connected to the sense of living in a world in turmoil. But I'd, I'd like to hear a bit more about this embrace of the of the literary self and of the word and of the, of the writing. Um, and then the other thing I think it's interesting to think about is, is that this um, this subject of the pre or proto-national Adriatic, Venetian Adriatic that, that Dominic Ryle has, has contributed so importantly to and that Constantino has contributed to in his book, it gets its pathos from a certain idea that the nation state is going to triumph. So that some of them become the Italian national poet, some become, becomes the Greek national poet, but, but 20 years or 30 years after their death, we're set in this very different world and all the fluidity of the Venetian Empire has gone. But I, I wanted to ask Constantino, from the perspective of Europe today, do we need to have this, do we need to feel the same pathos? Do we need to feel that the nation state is the teleology? The nation state might have been the dominant form for a hundred years or so. But I wonder if there is another way of thinking about this Venetian world that um, is not written in the spirit of the world we have lost, but in another vein altogether. It's a really beautiful book. Thank you very much. Finally, we'll hear Constantina responding to Dominique and Mark at the panel. So thank, thank you so much. Uh, this is uh, really beautiful. I'm so happy that... Okay. Thank you all, but I'm so happy for these two people who are next to me. <laughs> Not only for the words that they said, but also because I know for them for years and their work has been deeply inspirational for everything I have been writing all these years and teaching. So um, let me comment very briefly um, on two, three things. Um, I, I think that I will start with the subtitle of my book, which is Summary the Nation. I wanted to be the title. Uh, inspired by a, a conversation I had with Dominique in Miami many years ago, uh, but the publisher did not agree, so <laughs> But anyway, um, the stammering is a very important uh, element uh, of everything I, descri I described in that book, and it connects with what Mark was asking about, um, about this obsession of, you know, um, learning this new language, which is the language of the nation, and uh, and uh, they were obsessed, but they, it, it was all this new world opening in front of them, and it was not exact, they were not exactly ready, and they were stammering between languages because they didn't know the language very, very well, but also because they didn't know the new vocabulary. It was like the articulation of the whole new world, and, and it's exactly, this, is, this is exactly what I am, I am trying to say with the stammering metaphor, but also, the fact that by the end of the century, these people um, created a product where they could not feed. They, st they, they stayed outside. Uh, so it is a story also of a, you say it's a story of a triumph of the nation state, but also it's a story of the failure of these people to feed into this world. That, so I tried to imagine um, exactly against teleology. I think that my story was a story uh, which um, showed us the different options that could come out of this. And, um, and, and, and the fact that um, 
you know, that we are used to reading all these uh, people and all these uh, products and works and even geographies through uh, what can through nation states. So if I come to today's Europe, I think that my book, um, I, I tried at least to stir the waters of what we take for granted as the geography of Europe and the geography of nation states and frontiers and, and all these things and, and, and say, look, um, geographies are more of uh, mobile things, are more of like cultural and mobile things and the sea um, is not outside of the story of history, it's, it's like part of it. And, and so if the sea is part of it, it means that what is happening in the sea, especially today in the Mediterranean Sea, it uh, should be taken not as a peripheral phenomenon, but as part of what is happening in the lands. So, um, and the other thing that I wanted to comment on, yes, and this, this book, uh, I thought that it should be a book not about uh, ideas only, this is how it started, but about the, uh, the characters of the drama. That make the it's, I, and, I, and, the, and then I relocated the whole narrative on the basis of these life stories and what they tell us. Um, and um, and so uh, also I did this also because I realized that uh, that the modern I see, this was the time that the modern idea of the self was emerging as such there was there was not such a thing before actually the French Revolution I would say or those times like before Rousseau writing the journal his own journal so this is the time that uh, we have this obsession to um, as I teach in my, in my class, this obsession to um, kind of um, find something which is the authentic self behind, this idea that there is a coherent and authentic self that needs to be supported and shown, expressed somehow, which is the, the essence of romanticism, right? Um, but, um, but you see, so, so these characters, it's interesting because they, they write fiction, but then by, by what they write, they become the fictional romantic characters. They, so they become fictional somehow. So I couldn't, I, I can't say uh, really uh, where history ends and where fiction starts in the lives of these people, which is exactly what I teach in the literature department. It's what I'm trying to say, that I, I, I am kind of, I don't know when I am the historian and when I am the storyteller, to be honest. Uh, and I like this. I mean, I don't feel guilty about this. Uh, so, yeah, I, because I think that we are all a little bit of storytellers, and it's good if we annoy you. It's easier for us. I mean, it's truer, like I may say. So, um, yeah, um, I think that uh, we can continue this conversation or discussion. Thank you, Yay. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast, celebrating Konstantina Zanu's book, Transnational Patriotism in the Mediterranean, 1800 to 1850, Stammering the Nation. I hope you'll listen to the other podcast from this panel, discussing Pier Mattia Tomasino's book, The Venetian Quran, a Renaissance Companion to Islam. From Columbia University Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities, I'm Anne Levitsky.